Well, good morning, church family. It's hard to believe it was three years ago that my family and I moved here from Knoxville, Tennessee to serve here at Lake Avenue Church, and I'm so glad that we did. Our three children are growing up quickly. I think there's a photo that's going to be shown here. Uh, this summer, they all moved up, uh, one into junior high, one into high school, and one into college. So this is a busy time in the Seacrest home, and in case you were wondering, the one next to me is my daughter, not my wife. She and my wife, I think, are clones. So, But thank you for loving us into this church family. When I turned 20 years old, I would never have imagined I would be doing what I'm doing today. Partly because I didn't know God. I was not following Jesus, nor was I looking for him. But God was looking for me. Do you know how that feels? God looking for you. God pursuing you. When we sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Well, this morning we are escaping from our study in Exodus just for one week to look at this mission that Jesus has called us to. And in Luke 19.10, Jesus gives us the reason for his coming. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, the first element of that purpose is to seek. God takes the initiative. He doesn't wait for you to find him. He has come looking for you, just like he came looking for me. And many of you would testify that you were not looking for God when you trusted in Jesus, but that God was pursuing you, and he found you, and he rescued you. Don't forget that moment when God found you. It's one of the reasons we had our Turning Point series this past spring, remembering those moments. This is one of the defining differences between Christianity and other religions. Most religions are about how man can try to reach God. But the essential message of the gospel is the story of how God has tried to reach man. And he breaks into our lives, sometimes in dramatic ways, to get our attention and to turn us toward him. He is seeking you. And as we heard many of these testimonies in the spring of these turning points in your lives, it's evident to me that God is still seeking us. Amen? Well, turn in your Bible to the book of John. Today we're going to focus on chapter 6, but if you look at the chapters before that, we see in the ministry of Jesus a model of seeking the lost. Jesus models an evangelistic ministry that is cross-cultural. In chapter 4, he reaches out to the Samaritan woman with the love of God. And he had to cross many different cultural barriers to touch the life of this woman who was thirsty for something more in her life. Prior to that, in chapter 3, Jesus talks with Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was a very religious man, a powerful man, an intelligent man, a very successful person. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And yet, deep down, he was also thirsty for something more in life. 
And Jesus tells him that he needs to be born again. He needs to have God breathe real life into him through his spirit. Do you know any powerful, intelligent, successful people? They need Jesus. Then in John 5, we see Jesus involved in a ministry of compassion and social concern. He goes to this place in Jerusalem called Bethesda, where all sorts of people who had given up hope in life would gather together. And here he finds a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. A man who had given up hope. And Jesus reaches out to him in love, and he heals him. Now there's no evidence that the man had faith. He didn't even know who it was that healed him. Jesus simply had compassion on him. So Jesus models all these great ministries of outreach for us. We're to seek out the lost no matter what their social class. We're to go into the world and into other cultures. And we're to demonstrate the compassion of God in a world of need. And uh, thank you for the high schoolers who are going to Detroit next week um, to, to reach out with compassion to a city in need. For those who are just returning from Thailand, thank you for modeling that church family. But Jesus takes us beyond this. Yes, he has come to seek and to save the lost, but Jesus is never simply content to gather large groups of people together who have some kind of connection to him. He's not content that there be merely some connection between you and him. He wants to transform the lives and the destinies of all those who will follow him. So this morning, we're going to look at the ministry of Jesus toward people who already have some kind of attachment to him. These are people who are already in the crowd, following Jesus in some way. In other words, it's the ministry of Jesus to people like us. We need to see this because the church, and as the church, we're not only called to reach out, But we are called to build up. Not only are we to seek out the lost, but we are to make disciples. And we can never make disciples if we don't go out and seek people. But if all we've done is gather people together, like we do on a Sunday morning in large numbers, and that's it, then we have not pursued the goal that Jesus has called us to. In your mission folder, or excuse me, in your worship folder, you will see an insert that highlights our church mission, vision, and strategies. These were officially adopted a month ago by the congregation at our congregational meeting. I'd like you to take some time to reflect on these after the service. Uh, what, What these do, and on the back side as well, they really serve as a lens for us to help us evaluate what we do and how we do it. Are we doing what we do according to this mission and vision and principles and strategies? And and I'm very encouraged by this because our mission is the very thing Jesus called us to in the Great Commission, and that is to go and make disciples. Matthew 28. Not just gather a crowd. But before we do that, let me go over a few definitions that, that we're working on. What is a disciple? It's not strictly a Christian term. A disciple is a learner, someone who is a follower, one who follows the teachings of another person 
and shapes their life and actions to become like that person. You could be a disciple of, of many different things, many different people. But a Christian disciple is one who follows Jesus Christ as Lord and seeks to become like him. And discipleship is intentional participation with others in a process of becoming complete in Christ. And if you notice our ministry vision, that's, that's the goal there from Colossians 1, presenting each one complete in Christ. And, and each element of that definition of discipleship is important. You know, it, it requires intentional participation. Uh, there are choices to be made, sacrifices. This, this doesn't just happen. It must be with others. You can't do this alone. God didn't design you to experience completeness in Christ on your own. You need to be part of a community, a body of believers who will do that with you. And it requires a process. It's not just random. We need a plan. There are habits. There are disciplines that are part of this becoming complete in Christ that we must practice. And then, of course, that's, there's the goal. What are we striving for? Completeness in Christ. Well, here in John 6, we find Jesus' ministry, understandably so, had begun to attract a significant crowd. If you look at John 6, verse 10, we read that a huge crowd had gathered by the Sea of Galilee. The text says there were 5,000 men, but we can assume there must have been just as many, if not more, women and children. In fact, some scholars estimate that there were well over 20,000 people who had gathered around Jesus. That's a lot of people. I I think we would be pretty excited if we could attract that many people through our seeking ministries here at Lake Avenue Church. We've got enough seats for everybody, for 20,000. And Jesus did a great miracle in the text here when he fed that huge crowd with only five loaves and two fish. But I think it would be a pretty outstanding miracle if we could find parking for 20,000 people at Lake Avenue Church. But I digress. Now, the interesting thing about this crowd, this Jesus crowd, is there were all kinds of different reasons why people were there. That's always true, and it's true of us today. So it's, it's fair to ask, why are you here? How you answer that question reveals a lot about where you are at on this journey of following Jesus. And as we look at some of the reasons of why people are in the Jesus crowd, I want you to ask yourself that question honestly today. Why are you in this crowd? Well, as you read through John 6, it becomes evident there were a number of casual drifters in the crowd. Now, that's true of any crowd, especially a large crowd. There are always some people here because other people are here. Some of you are here because your parents told you to come. Others because friends are here. Or perhaps you were invited. Some of you may be here because you saw these people coming across Lake Avenue Church and thought, what's going on in there? Let's go check it out. I imagine that's what happened in this Jesus crowd in the text. Thousands of people moving around the Sea of Galilee. It had to get the attention of people going, what are all these people doing? I don't know. Let's, let's go check it out. A crowd draws a crowd. 
Try standing at the Paseo and just look up in the sky for a while and see how many people come over and and start looking up in the sky with you to see what, what are they looking at. In any crowd, there are always people there because there are other people there. And that's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. We're social creatures. We're very curious and we're glad you're here if that's why you came. But if that's your only connection to Jesus Christ, you won't be following him for very long. Secondly, it's clear that in this crowd there were a number of sensation seekers. Look at verse 2, chapter 6, verse 2. We read that these people followed Jesus because they saw the miraculous signs that he performed on the sick. Now, put yourself in their shoes. These were exciting times. Jesus had been in Jerusalem, now he's in Galilee, and the word is getting around. Did you hear about the man who was crippled for 38 years? He's up and walking. I wonder what Jesus will do here. Well, let's go and see. Well, they weren't disappointed. Those who came that day experienced the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, probably the feeding of the 20,000. And they went to bed that night wondering, what would Jesus do the next day? Well, they were disappointed when they woke up and they found that Jesus had crossed over the lake and gone to the other side in the night. So they picked up their things and they made the trip around the lake. And in verse 30, this group comes to Jesus And asks him this question. Jesus, what miraculous sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? Well, they could have been a little more subtle. But they weren't. They followed him because he healed the sick. Yesterday they saw him feed 20,000 people. And now they come around the lake and say, what are you going to do for us today? Some people are sensation seekers. These are people who are looking for a spine-tingling moment. Make me feel something. Shock me, grip me, entertain me, wow me. It's roller coaster Christianity. The ride has to be fast enough for me to really feel something. Now, some people like that may be in church today. You want to experience something. You're not sure what it is. But you want your life to be stimulated in some way. There's nothing wrong with that. I I hope you're not disappointed. But if that's your only reason for attachment to Jesus, you won't be following him for very long. Then Jesus identifies the third group. Uh, These are the hungry consumers. In verse 26, uh, some of those who came around the lake to find him asked him a question. Actually, they wanted to figure out how he got there. And uh, they missed the miracle of Jesus walking across the lake in the middle of the night. But they weren't quite sure how to be forward with him. So Jesus answers them. And in verse 26, he says, I tell you the truth. You're looking for me not because you saw the miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. They were there because they got a free lunch yesterday. What will he give us today? Now, a mentality similar to this today might look like this. If you ask someone, why are you here? They'd say, well, I'm here because of what is offered. I love the music, and I need a children's program that's excellent. What you offer is exactly what I need. That's why I'm here. 
A few weeks ago, Pastor Waybright described Southern California as very religious, but it's a self-serving, self-centered religion of consumerism. Hungry consumers. There's nothing wrong with showing up for those reasons. But if that's your only reason for staying here, you won't be following Jesus for very long. And then fourthly, in this big crowd, are some who follow Jesus for what's to be gained politically, um, business, relationally. Um, Look at verses 14 and 15. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who was to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again by a mountain to a mountain by himself. Now, the Jews hated the Roman oppression, especially the Galilean Jews. And they were looking for the right time and the right leadership to overthrow the Romans. And when they see a crowd of 20,000 people, they're immediately interested. These people represent a lot of public opinion. And so some of them join the crowd, and they decide that Jesus is their man. They've got the campaign buttons ready to go. They've got the yard signs ready to distribute. Jesus, he's the one. People often use religion as a means toward political gain. We do it today. Religion can be good, not just for politics, but for business as well. There's a lot of good contacts to be made in the church. There's friends to be made, a future spouse to meet. Church can be very helpful in all of those areas. There's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But if that's your only connection to Jesus Christ, you won't be following him for very long. So here's this large and very mixed crowd, casual drifters who who are saying, who's going to be there today? What's going on? Sensation seekers saying, I wonder what I'll experience today. Hungry consumers saying, I wonder what they'll offer today. I hope it's what I want. And opportunists who are there because of the leverage saying, what's in it for me today? Why are you here? Jesus is always glad to receive people for whatever reason they come. And so are we. And and so we mean it. Just like when Pastor Walter said, welcome. We mean that. But he's never content to leave us where where we are. And so the last half of John chapter 6 describes for us how Jesus intentionally creates a crisis. And he does it in one sermon. He teaches who he is and why he came. And it divides the crowd right down the middle. No, actually it alienates almost everybody in the crowd. We're not going to read through it right now, but but those themes permeate his message that day. Truth about who he is and why he came. Look at verse 35. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I gave you bread yesterday, but don't you see that you're hungry again? Only I can satisfy the hunger of your soul. And then verse 41, I am the bread who came down from heaven. I'm the one who's come from heaven. My mission is about heaven. And then in verse 51, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. 
And then he shocks them in verse 53. It was part of our scripture reading. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Last week we talked about the Passover and we celebrated the Lord's Supper. And so when we hear verse 53, we know that Jesus is calling us to a complete devotion and identification with his death on the cross. Trusting in his sacrifice of his body and his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. But casual drifters, consumers, um, opportunists, they want nothing to do with that. Notice the response in verse 60. They hear the sermon and they say, This is a hard teaching. And then John says in verse 66, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Imagine standing on a street corner there in Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee and and you're there taking an exit poll of those who are leaving Jesus. Hi, I'm with Channel 2 News, and we want to know why you are leaving Jesus. Well, I was there when he fed 20,000 people. It was incredible. You should have seen it. But there weren't any miracles today, just a sermon. Excuse me, madam, why did, why did you come to the service today? Well, yesterday he was offering a free meal. But today all he's talking about is spiritual values. A couple teenagers come down the street. Excuse me, why are you leaving Jesus? Oh, we just came with Jim and Sue, and, and they left, so we're leaving also. And as the people begin to leave, literally by the thousands, think Rose Bowl, game over, hordes of people just walking away from Jesus. You begin to ask yourself, how can Jesus allow this to happen? What kind of mistake has he made? Why doesn't he go, wait, wait a minute. What did I say? Did, did I offend you? Did I say something wrong? Let, let me clarify. Because if I'm clear, maybe, maybe you'll stay. He doesn't do that. He was very clear about who he is and why he came. This is the day when Jesus sifted his own crowd. And the reason he sifts them is he wants more than a crowd. He's looking to make disciples. He doesn't want to play the numbers game. And as he teaches who he is and why he came, it leads some people into a life of authentic discipleship, following Jesus. And for others, it closes off their interest in Jesus altogether. Now that happens sooner or later for all of us. The goal of Jesus is never to create a crowd. It's always to make disciples. And he invites us to follow him as Lord. Well, Jesus then turns back to the twelve in verse 67. Just imagine being one of them and and watching this whole scene play itself out. It must have been unbelievable just watching thousands of people walk away from Jesus. Imagine how his twelve closest disciples felt. Perhaps Peter and some of the other twelve had friends who had become part of this wider group. Maybe some family. And now they were gone. Have you ever had a friend or a family member who came near to Jesus? They started coming to church. They were important to you. But then they went away. Uh, 
they lost interest. Or maybe they were turned off. And, and you just felt terrible. Well, in verse 67, Jesus comes to this discouraged group of followers. And he asks them a question. You don't want to leave too, do you? Have you ever felt like leaving? Have there been times when following Jesus just seemed too difficult for you? I I imagine there are some of you here today who are feeling discouraged. You're here, but you are right on the cusp of saying, "It's, it's too tough, it's too hard, this is a hard teaching, and you're right on the cusp of turning away. What is it that makes a difference between people who come and they spend time in church But then they shrink back and they end up a long way from Jesus. And those who press forward through dry times, through difficult and discouraging times. Why is it that the twelve stayed when so many went away that day? Jesus knew what they were feeling. You don't want to leave too, do you? And as Jesus faces them with this question... Of course, Peter steps forward true to form, and he gives us one of the greatest confessions of faith recorded in the Gospels. And this confession of faith gives us the basis for a true life of discipleship. Look at verse 68. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. In the time that Peter has spent with Jesus, he's discovered that his life is not okay before a holy God. Before Peter met Jesus, he probably thought of himself as okay. A good family man, a good fisherman, a bit of a temper, maybe rough around the edges, but, you know, no one's perfect. But then he had a turning point. Jesus found him. And when he met Jesus, he realized there is a massive distance between him and a holy God. He realizes how much he needs Jesus. And he says, Lord, I'm staying with you. Because you are the only one who can make things right between me and a holy God. I need you. There is no one else I can go to. Are you absolutely sure about this. Are you clear about this in your life? It's the foundation of a life of discipleship. Without the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, without His saving power applied to you personally through faith, without those things, you have no hope before a holy God. Do you understand? Peter says, without you, I'm lost. And this is the first conviction that will sustain a life of discipleship. The understanding there is nowhere else to go. I have no other options. This is it. Lord, to whom shall we go? The second conviction is that God's word is true and trustworthy. Peter says, you have the words of eternal life. It's as if Peter was saying, you know, Jesus, some people may be turning back because the teaching is hard. I didn't follow you because I thought the teaching would be easy. Some of those things you said today about drinking blood and eating flesh, I don't fully understand. 
I struggle with some of your theology, Jesus, but I never signed up for an easy teaching. I follow you because you have the words of eternal life. Some of my friends have left, but I didn't follow you just to sit with my friends. I'm staying with you. And we know that Peter was to face a much harder test in the future. Uh, He would be imprisoned. He'd be beaten and tortured. And tradition says that he was executed by being crucified upside down because of his faith. Now, here in California, we live in the, the free world, and it's hard to imagine that kind of persecution. It's unconstitutional. But after church, uh, we'll go out and maybe uh, enjoy a nice lunch, talk about church, and uh, be thankful for it. Perhaps we won't even talk about it because we just take it for granted. But there are brothers and sisters in Christ today who are suffering unspeakable things simply because they are disciples of Jesus Christ. What sustains someone in light of that kind of life and death pressure? Peter says, only you have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? And finally, you must be absolutely clear about the identity of Jesus. Jesus is God and he is Lord. Verse 68. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter is saying, the day we met you, Jesus, we met God. When I talk to you, Jesus, I'm talking to God. And if I walk away from you, Jesus, I'm walking away from God. Seems pretty simple, doesn't it? Simple, but it's not easy. But Jesus accepts his confession of faith there in verse 70, but he adds one correction. He says, Peter, I I know you're speaking on behalf of the twelve. Remember, Peter said, we have come to know and to believe. Jesus says, I have to make a correction. This is true of all of you except one. Even in this core group, there is one who has never understood how much he needs me. One who has never really understood the reason for following me. You see, Jesus knows every heart. He knew that the crowd would leave, and he knew what Judas was thinking. And he knows what you are thinking. Judas had the most perfect teacher. He had the most unique opportunity, direct access there to God. But he had an unchanged heart. And he was part of the Jesus crowd. He was part of the inner circle. But you can't disciple an unchanged heart. Why are you here? Who do you think Jesus is and why he came? I hope that when we read the Apostles' Creed earlier that The words of your lips reflected the attitude of your heart. I'm glad you came for whatever reason. But why are you part of this crowd? Do you know that Jesus is the Holy One of God? Do you know that only through Him can you find eternal life? There's no one else you can go to. His word is true. You can trust Him no matter what anyone else does. Are you willing to become his lifelong disciple and follow him wherever he leads you? Just like we sang earlier, I will follow you.
Well, if you are, then let's do it together and let's do it with one another. And Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And what day is is the writer talking about? He's talking about the day when Jesus will come again in his glory and in power. Jesus is coming again, friends. And we want to be ready. So let's spur one another on in the adventure of following Jesus. To the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you know each of our hearts. We cannot hide anything from you. You know what we're struggling with right now. Following you as Lord is difficult sometimes. And you don't mind if we say so. In fact, you turn to each of us during these hard times and you ask us this very same question. You don't want to leave too, do you? God, you know that we struggle every day. But by faith, here's our answer, Lord. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We at Lake Avenue Church have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Thank you for seeking us out and saving us. No matter how difficult it gets for me, I will follow you because there is nowhere else to go.